You're listening to Now I've Heard Everything, interviews from the 80s, 90s, and 2000s with voices from the past. Any woman who stands up in public to say there's something wrong here, especially if she calls herself a feminist, as I do, can invariably count on attention being directed at her appearance as a way to undermine what she's saying. Feminist author Naomi Wolf. Today on Now I've Heard Everything, I'm Bill Thompson. You've heard it said that beauty is in the eye of the beholder. But in modern Western society, the beholders are usually men, and it's men who make the rules about beauty in this social construct. Now that's the essence, and boil down to my words, of Naomi Wolf's blockbuster breakthrough 1991 book called The Beauty Myth. That book made huge waves when it was published 30 years ago. In fact, the New York Times later called it one of the century's 70 most influential books. But it also created a lot of controversy for Naomi Wolf, especially among men who were interviewing her and reviewing her book, and a few feminists who disagreed with her premise. I first met Naomi Wolf in 1991, when her book was first published. We've spoken many times since then. But listening back to this interview is a little uncomfortable about how naive some of my questions sounded. You be the judge. Here's so here now from 1991. Naomi Wolf. Well, a lot of things started to come together all at once. Um, I was noticing that in the uh, very sort of elitist schools I was being educated at, like Yale and Oxford, um, every single woman I knew had either had an eating disorder or was still struggling with an eating disorder, uh, including myself. I was very sick from anorexia when I was 12. Um, and I think the, the real sort of turning point came when I, I won a Rhodes Scholarship and got to Oxford, and there was a big debate between the men and women um, in my college about uh, pornography in the common room. Would we keep subscribing to these British tabloid newspapers that show page three girls uh, on the on, you know topless models? And the boys used to sit around on Sunday morning counting the nipples. This was their pastime. And this was definitely about establishing that that room was male space and that women weren't welcome. Well, the women argued really beautifully and we won uh, we decided to stop subscribing to them and the men were angry that we had won the debate and this one guy came up to me and said you know Naomi this classmate of mine you just won that scholarship because of your looks I know and in one minute I felt like he had, had tried to strip me of my achievement and of my sense of belonging in that community and I went around to the other women road scholars and said has anything like this ever happened to you and every single one of them had had the same experience and then this light went on in my head and I realized this is not personal this has nothing to do with how we look this is about power and this is a last ditch uh, way that this particular guy can feel more than equal at a time when women are becoming equal so then I realized that globally uh, the same pattern was happening, that just, for instance, when we got Title VII that makes it illegal to discriminate against women on the basis of our gender in the workplace, employers were starting to um, use ideas about beauty as a political weapon against women by discriminating against us on the basis of our looks in the workplace. And this made for a legal catch-22 where you can now, in America in 1991, lose your job for looking, quote, too pretty, like a policewoman named Nancy Foddle out in Oakland. And you can lose your job, as Teresa Fischette, the Continental Ground Personnel, discovered to her dismay a month ago, uh, for looking, quote, not pretty enough, um, like Christine Kraft, the anchorwoman, uh, like Teresa Fischette, like Ann Hopkins here in Washington, the lawyer who didn't make senior partner because she was, quote, not feminine enough. So basically, legally, women don't have a thing to wear. Do you find that men will agree with your basic premise that that 
our ideals of beauty change as, as the, the years change, as the generations change, as cultures change, but they don't buy into this idea that it's all a plot somehow to keep women down? Well, I never say it's a plot. <laughs> I'm saying something a little bit more sophisticated. <laughs> uh, I mean, how does, how does racism work? It's not a plot. You know, there's not a smoke-filled room where white people at the top say, let's keep those African Americans down. Uh, not at all. Let's look at the Century Club, for example. Um, the New York Supreme Court decided in 1988 that it was uh, wrong and discriminatory for there to be all-male clubs where business was conducted. Now, the um, white old men who held the reins of power at the Century Club weren't sitting around smoking their cigars saying, you know, we've got a you know, plan to strategize to keep out those women and Jews and blacks. Not at all. But that's how power is reinforced. That's how it gets passed on. In my chapter on discrimination on the basis of looks in the workplace, uh, over and over again, judges rule that, for instance, there can be a standard of physical perfection for a woman, but there is no legal standard of physical perfection in the workplace for men. Every judge that makes a decision like that isn't consciously thinking, let's nail those women. He's doing what feels comfortable at a time um, when women's empowerment poses a a real threat to the way things get done. I mean, basically, the argument of my book is that um, if... Uh, because women work so hard and because we're so, you know, smart, <laughs> if, if women were to move freely through a real meritocracy, certainly it's reasonable to imagine that half the jobs that are now held by men would go to women. Um, and that's uh, a backlash is a natural reaction um, faced with a threat like that. On the other hand, they're definitely f- the big four uh, villains of the piece. These are the, um, and they're consciously conspiring definitely to exploit women's fears and vulnerabilities. And these are the $33 billion dieting industry, a third of the nation's food budget, the $20 billion cosmetics industry selling fraudulent anti-aging products, uh, and the $300 million cosmetic surgery industry, fastest growing medical specialty and totally, totally unregulated. Uh, these three, uh, really, in the background, there's the $7 billion pornography industry. Uh, this statistic cracks me up with more outlets than McDonald's. Um, the first three, most women don't know, have a real censoring effect on mainstream media and women's culture, uh, especially women's magazines. And they really ha- um, can determine because of their advertising clout, what kind of images of women those editors can portray. So Christy Brinkley is on the cover of everything, rather than, say, Ann Richards, the governor of Texas, or Teresa, um, Mother Teresa, or Bella Abzug, not because there's something more innately beautiful uh, about Christy Brinkley or wonderful to look at, but because those advertisers selling dangerous or fraudulent diet and anti-aging products wouldn't have the stranglehold over us that they do if we could see a full range of images of women admiringly portrayed of all shapes and sizes. Well, who'd want to be on a diet that makes you look like Bella Abzug? Well, we we should definitely have the choice, though, of a full range I, of heroines. I, I, I'm, just I'm, being provocative. I, I, I'm just I'm toying with you here, <laughs> because you make some excellent points that, that make men and women think. I mean, I, I think any man who watches the Donahue audience when they have the Chippendale models mm-hmm. gets a first-hand taste, a, a cold slap in the face mm. of what women must feel like. Mm. And how do you feel when you watch that as a man? Threatened. Uh-huh. And in what way exactly? Well, I'm, 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 I'm watching these women out there the, these 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 lustful looks in their eyes, whether it's honest or not, or whether it's genuine, or whether they're just you know looking that, mm-hmm. yeah looking that way because their husbands look that way. You know, at uh, when when they get the magazines at home, I don't exactly. know. But but the idea is, well, I'm never going to look like that. Mm-hmm. I'm I'm never going to have a size 34 waist again. Uh, a, a sense that there is an ideal. Mm-hmm. 
that they're looking at that I can't be. Mm-hmm. And it's it's a very unloving thing to experience, isn't it? I mean, it really uh, doesn't foster harmony between the sexes at all. And that's why I, I hope as many men as women will read the beauty myth, because in my chapter on sex, I really argue that these images that increasingly are spilling over from um, softcore pornography like Playboy and Penthouse into MTV, into Nine and a Half Weeks, Blue Velvet, you know, the local shopping mall, uh, are really having a very negative effect on the relations between the sexes, on love, on sex itself, that these images don't express sexuality uh, so much as repress it or distort it, and that um, these these images are not about love or sex at all, but about money and power right now. And uh, what's really scary is how more and more women feel that they have to internalize these images, and especially young women who grew up with um, image culture all around them, telling them what sex should look like before they learned about real, warm, flawed human sexuality. Uh, Increasingly, they say things to me like, "Um, I feel that I must be my boyfriend's second choice after his playboy. Or, yeah, or I feel like um, because I've got small breasts and big hips, I'm not really a woman. Or this one young woman really put it well. She said, I feel like when I'm making love with my boyfriend, there are three people in the room. There's me, there's him, and there's her, meaning the ideal, Miss July. And she said, and everyone's looking at her. Now, this is not a situation that um, that brings the sexes closer together into a state of mutual tenderness or harmony. And I hope more and more men do think about what would put themselves in the place of... of those women who, whose husbands say, you know, why can't you look like Vanna White? After this short break, how corporate money drives the beauty myth. Now back to my 1991 conversation with Naomi Wolf. Are you surprised, or should you be surprised, that stories that are written about your book after interviews have been done with you invariably mention what you look like? Well, it certainly proves my thesis. <laughs> uh, I predict in the book that any woman, the way the beauty myth works as a political weapon against women is exactly what you're talking about. Any woman who stands up in public to say there's something wrong here, especially if she calls herself a feminist, as I do, can invariably count on attention being directed at her appearance as a way to undermine what she's saying. And again, just like in the workplace, it's a catch-22. You can lose your authority for looking, quote, too pretty. You know, how do you know? What are you talking about? You know, that's the bimbo effect. You can lose your authority by looking, quote, not pretty enough. Oh, well, it's just sour grapes, you're a dog. No, I mean, when I'm on the radio, I get calls that say, what's your problem? You know, are you a dog? Do you have a sister who's prettier than you are? <laughs> yes, I do. <laughs> and that we have to realize that those moments are political. They have nothing to do with any one woman's looks. I mean, people have been caricaturing the appearance of feminists for as long as there have been feminists. And that's, again, proof that the beauty myth is political. This stereotype of the ugly feminist that we have, you know, has no relationship to any group of feminists as a whole or, you know, any more than any group of housewives or rock scientists. It has to do with uh, behavior, not appearance. And women know that when they step out of line, people are going to use the beauty myth against them, look them up and down to try to find out something that's wrong with them or something that individualizes this for them. But you've got to know when you when you scrape nerves that, that are raw, you're going to get those visceral kinds of reactions. They're, mm-hmm. they're, going, to, they're going to insult you. Mm-hmm. And my point is always to direct attention to exactly that moment because that moment where you say... Um, you know, this author who's softly curvaceous, you know, that that moment is what the beauty myth is all about. It's about um, drawing attention to women's uh, bodies to avoid hearing what women are saying. I mean, what's important about my book is what's between those covers, not whether or not I put a jacket photograph uh, inside. It strikes me that with, with as many women as are 
beginning to to gain positions in in advertising in the media, uh, who run radio and TV stations, who run their own advertising agencies. Why don't we have more ads, more TV shows, more more media appearances by average-looking women and men? Mm-hmm. Um, well, it's unfortunately more complicated than that. I mean, women's magazines are a great example of how uh, no woman yet is free enough or has the power to uh, portray women in a full, humane way. Um, women's magazines give with one hand and take with the other. On the one hand, they run some of the most serious pro-woman articles around. I mean, mainstream magazines don't give serious attention to women's health, women's uh, concerns, women's finances, how to gain power in the workplace. Not not at all. On the other hand, the beauty advertisers are paying the rent, and so women's magazine editors aren't free. They just aren't free to... Um, I remember one story about a, a wonderful woman architect they were going to profile. Real role model, real heroine. Everyone loved her. Great buildings. <laughs> uh, they got the pictures, and this famous, glossy woman's magazine editor had to spike the story. She couldn't run it. Why? Because the architect was, quote, too fat. Too fat aesthetically? No. Just fat enough so that the major advertisers, the diet industry, would lose that stranglehold on women if the message were... if a, a, a positive image of a larger woman were portrayed and, and half the women in this country who are oversized 14 would open that magazine and think, hey, maybe it's all right after all to be who and what I am. Um, so really we've got a heavy hand there. It's censorship, uh, much like censorship in the East before uh, the changes in the Soviet bloc. And I think we should wake up to that and understand it. I think the part of your book I may have found most valuable was, was the epilogue where at the end where, where you're summing up, and, and if I'm, I'm broadly paraphrasing you when, when I say that, that to pursue beauty is all right as long as you feel you may as, as opposed to feeling you have to. Uh, what I'm talking about is choice, exactly. I mean, my book really isn't about beauty any more than Betty Friedan's book is about housework. I mean, the feminine mystique really wasn't about how you mop your floor. It's about how ideas about how you mop your floor are being used to keep women out of the workplace in the 50s. My book is really an update of that. Um, I'm talking about how ideas about beauty are being used, holding other things hostage, keeping women from feeling strong, confident, secure, and fighting for their rights. I mean, the real argument is that uh, the ideal shrank, for instance, to 23% below the weight of the average American woman, down from 8% below before the women's movement, so that we would be so busy worrying about the size of our thighs that we wouldn't be marching on Congress so that we would have one shift on the job and a second shift at home doing most of the housework and a third shift of that compulsory exercise at the gym that mops up the extra time and leisure and self-love that might go into um, marching on Washington, agitating for change, getting the Equal Rights Amendment passed, etc. So, yeah, I mean, there's not a page in the book where I say you shouldn't wear makeup or you shouldn't enjoy fashion. Women should do everything they want to do with their faces and bodies, but we do need the real choice that we don't yet have. My book is about um, pointing out that we deserve more choice than we're getting. Naomi Wolf is 59 now. She lives in Washington, D.C. And you can find easy Amazon links to Naomi Wolf's books at our website, heardeverything.com. And while you're there, be sure and listen to my 2006 interview with another feminist icon, Betty Friedan. I didn't set out to make a revolution at all, you know, but I certainly didn't realize I was going to start the most massive revolution of them all. And my 1994 interview with the founder of Ms. Magazine, Gloria Steinem. The genius of social justice movements, whether it's the women's movement, the black movement, the Hispanic movement, the gay movement, whatever the movement is, the genius of it comes from people 
letting others know that you can do it. Together we can support each other and we can make it happen. And of course we post new episodes here every Monday, Wednesday, and Friday. And you can find Now I've Heard Everything on all major podcast platforms. And thanks for listening. Next time on Now I've Heard Everything, a 60s music icon, the one-time lead singer of The Animals, my 2002 interview with Eric Burden. We had to invent a new art form based on a form of music and expressionism that America had thrown into the garbage bin. And we went through the collective cultural garbage bin and scraped it out, put a new twist on it, and called it the British Invasion. That's next time on Now I've Heard Everything. I'm Bill Thompson. Thank you.